0: Today we're, we're diving into a major biblical topic. This is, a, this is a big topic in the Bible. It's about engaging with God when one is under persecution. Engaging with God when you are being persecuted. Of course, you hear that, and no doubt, you are saying to yourself in your uh, Julia Child imitation, "Uh, Julia Child, this will be the shortest message in history. Christians are never persecuted in America, (laughs) Julia Child. Yeah, thank you for that opinion. That's wonderful, Julia. But don't be so sure. Let me read you this, section 533B of the 2013 National Defense Authorization Act states, and I quote, No member of the armed forces may, one, require a chaplain to perform any rite, ritual, or ceremony that is contrary to the conscience, moral, principles, or religious beliefs of the chaplain, or two, discriminate or take any adverse personnel action against a chaplain, including denial of promotion, schooling, training, or assignment on the basis of the refusal by the chaplain to comply with a requirement prohibited by paragraph one. Close quote. Sounds pretty clear, right? Seems very straightforward. And yet, Todd Starnes of Fox News recently posted this story. The U.S. Army may have violated the First Amendment rights of a decorated chaplain, the U.S. Army, who is facing discipline for not conducting a marriage retreat that included a same-sex couple. Military investigation at Fort Bragg determined Chaplain Scott Squires should be disciplined for his failure to include a lesbian couple in the Strong Bonds marriage retreat. They determined he had discriminated against a soldier based on her sexual orientation. Chaplain Squires is endorsed by the Southern Baptist Convention's North American Mission Board. The Southern Baptist forbid its chaplains from facilitating marriage retreats that include same-sex couples. Had Chaplain Squires participated in that marriage retreat, he would have risked losing his endorsement by his church. Likewise, the army requires its chaplains to adhere by their endorsers, rules, and religious tenets. Chaplain Squires actually found another chaplain who was able to lead the marriage retreat that included same-sex couples. U.S. Representatives Doug Collins, Richard Hudson, Jody Heiss, Vicky Hartzler, and Doug Lamborn wrote a letter to the Secretary of Army expressing their concerns about the impact of what they called a meritless investigation would have on the chaplain's impeccable military career. He closes with this. First Liberty Institute, one of the nation's most prestigious religious liberty law firms is representing Squires. Chaplain Squire should not have his career ruined for following the rules of both his faith and the army, said First Liberty Institute attorney Michael Berry, close quote. Ah, now, now you're thinking differently. See, now in response to that, you're thinking in your um, Clint Eastwood, Gran Torino voice, back in the day, Christians weren't persecuted like that. Christians should never face persecution and get off my lawn. Right? That's what you're. That's what you're thinking. I understand the sentiment, Clint, but you are actually way off base. Christians have always been persecuted, even in America. We lack the time to go into it this morning, but um, just look up on your own the colonial experience of another Baptist, uh, Roger Williams, and you'll see a. A graphic example of persecution. Or or read about uh, President James Garfield. Long before he was president, you know, this Garfield was laughed at for believing in the resurrected Jesus Christ. By the way, it's a really fascinating story because he stood up in this situation and shamed and completely unhorsed his persecutor by using logic. But the the point is that even in the supposedly good old days of America, Christians have faced plenty of persecution. As we put it in your notes there in your bulletin, you got a worship guide when you came and open it up, look on the left hand side, you'll see this headline, persecution is part of Christian life. It's part of it. And there are really two aspects of this, a governmental tendency and an individual problem. Let's start with the governments. This issue that we're about to describe is true for every government of every time and place. And here it is, governments want you to submit to them. By the way, that's right and appropriate, it's understandable, but governments want you to submit to them. That can lead to some struggles. Open your Bible, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Let's read verses 16 through 18. 16 through 18. Jesus says, Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as harmless as doves. Because people will hand you over to Sanhedrins and flog you in their synagogues, beware of them. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the nations. This is part of Jesus' great commissioning speech as he sends out the 12 apostles. And then throughout the rest of the New Testament, this same thing is repeated again and again and again. And by the way, in the repetitions, it is applied to all followers of Jesus of all times, just so we know this wasn't limited just to them. Less than 100 years after Jesus spoke those words, the Roman Emperor Trajan provided a startling example of just how right the Lord was. Uh, Listen to this, Adrian Goldsworthy, one of my favorite modern historians, Adrian Goldsworthy writes really well, he describes the situation. The aim of the Roman government was to keep the provincial community stable, Prosperous enough to pay their taxes in the long run, at peace with each other, and content with imperial rule. The Roman preference is strikingly illustrated in the most famous exchange between Pliny, he's the governor of Pontus, um, that's an area of modern-day Turkey, uh, and Trajan, the emperor. Two letters they wrote back and forth that deal with Christians arrested and brought to the governor by authorities in one of the cities. Pliny informs the emperor that he has executed those Christians who refused to recant unless they were citizens who he's arranged to send to Rome for trial. Everyone who denied being a Christian and gave proof of this by taking an oath, making a sacrifice, meaning a sacrifice to the emperor worshiping the the God of the state, uh, and reviling the name of Christ, those people were allowed to go free." Close quote. Folks, besides some situational nuances, that story has not changed in 2000 years. Just ask Chaplain Squires. The point is not that governments seek to actively harm Christians. Believe it or not, most governments throughout history don't actively seek out Christians to harm. In fact, Trajan later wrote Pliny and he said, don't go seek out Christians to arrest them, but if they're brought to you, then do arrest them. Governments don't seek out Christians for the most part to persecute, but governments do want peace. They want peace. And to get that peace, they will aggressively persecute anyone who rocks the boat. Now quite often, that means Christians are persecuted. You know why, because we serve a Lord who is higher than any human government and that higher service leads to at least perceived boat rocking. Persecution is part of the Christian life. And beyond government proclivities, there's an individual problem, individuals hate submitting to God. Look further down, same speech, Matthew chapter 10, go to verse 24. Jesus says a disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It's enough for a disciple to become like his teacher, a slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household. Here's Jesus, Lord of all creation. And humans are calling him the devil, Beelzebul. Why would people do that when the truth is so obviously different? Because by nature, people hate submitting to God. It's true. Even those of you who are Christians, even we who are changed by God's grace, we are not immune, you know this, our flesh likes the illusion of being in charge, and so we raise our fist in rebellion against God Almighty. Let me, let me prove it, let's do this. Everybody, put your notes down and stand up. Stand up if you would, if you're able, everybody stand right now, if you would please. Just stand up, thank you. Now, most of you know me, and, and, and you trust me, uh, so unless I asked you to do something that was completely outright unbiblical and unreasonable, you would do, you would do what I, what I said to do, right? Okay, with that in mind, here's what I have for you, this command, don't sit down. Don't, do not sit down. All right, let's be honest, let's be honest. How many of you are dying to sit down right now? Raise your hand, yeah, amen, just kill it, me too. It's just killing you, isn't it? Actually standing up feels kinda nice, it breaks the side. I don't mind, until I'm told I have to. And then I don't want to. By the way, if you wanna read more about this, the Apostle Paul goes into this in Galatians, in depth about how rules lead to rebellion. They always do because of sinful human nature. Oh, you can sit down. Or stand, whatever you wanna do. You can can have a seat. People hate submitting. And when individuals express their anger over having to submit to God, they take it out on God's followers. It's natural. Listen to Jesus again. A disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It's enough for a disciple to become like his teacher, a slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household. The late John Mitchell was a wonderful pastor. He was a really encouraging teacher, but he did not mince words when he was telling truth on this topic. I uh, I like this quote so much, I put it in your notes. It's from John Mitchell's book, Fellowship, and he says this, The world still wants to carry on its program without God and without God's people. In many ways, Christians are a thorn in the flesh to those leaders who wish to bring in a world dominion without God. The world does not want God, nor his interference with its plans and program. When we declare that we're children of the one who is God, this world, which never knew the Savior, will not know us either. The world had no place for Christ. The world will have no place for us, close quote. Now with that in mind, listen very carefully. The issue is never submitting to us. Any conflict must not be about you or me. I mean, Let's just think about it. In fact, submitting to us may be a bad idea a lot of times, right? When Christians get in the way with our pride or our hurt feelings, it muddies the water. It is God's authority that is being rejected. Make sure you don't confuse things by making the issue about you, all right? So, what should we do then? Governments and individuals are preset to persecute Christians. How to respond? As we ask on the right side of your notes, look there, what to do? What to do? First... And most importantly, pray about the persecution and persecutors. Pray, there'll be two things to pray about, this is one of them. Uh, We learn this in many passages like this one. Look, prayer from David. Uh, Psalm 35, David says, verse eight, let ruin come on him, the person persecuting him, unexpectedly, and let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his ruin. Then I will rejoice in the Lord, I will delight in his deliverance. We've discussed this previously here, imprecation is biblical. Imprecation is, is to pray that God is present in an ugly situation. It's biblical, it is very important. We must pray for justice. It's not selfish, or at least it, it shouldn't be. It's holy. We pray about our persecutors because their problem is actually with God. We're merely being attacked by association. Imprecation is about God's glory. It's, it's about praying that those who persecute us will understand the importance of recognizing and participating in God's position and glory. Earlier in this series, I shared a poem with you by Pam Vredeveld, really good poem, It's it's worth revisiting. It's a poem about when life hurts. Look what she says. She said, God gives a glimpse of His glory. This is all about His glory. When it's dark, when we're afflicted, when plans fall apart, when circumstances try to squeeze the life from us, when hell seems near when we're obeying God's word even in our weakness and discouragement, when we're standing against the majority to fight for what is right, when we're choosing to believe in spite of a deep longing to just throw in the towel, when life feels like one long string of mistakes, when we're enduring difficult people who make false accusations, chronic complaints, or don't seem to care, when we're prying our fingers off of whatever we hold dear so our hands are open to receive whatever God wants to give. That gives us a glimpse of God's glory. And that's why we pray imprecatory prayers like David's. We pray to get a glimpse of God's glory, which is something we especially need when life hurts because we're being picked on. We engage with God in persecution. As we do so, we must also remember the promised blessing. Um, flip over to Matthew chapter 5. We'll come back to chapter 10 in just a moment, but I want to go to Matthew 5 for a second, a couple pages to the west in your Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Jesus says this, This is near the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. At the end of His famous Beatitudes, Jesus tells His followers there is a promised blessing for those who undergo persecution. Do you believe that? A promised blessing for those who undergo persecution. Let, let, me, let me put it this way, anybody here play sports, competitive sports when you were a teenager? Competitive sports when you were a teenager? Okay, quite a lot of you. Did you ever have the situation where your coach was just really driving you? I mean, you were exhausted, you were beaten black and blue, you had nothing left to give, and the coach is, come on, come on, give more! And it, it, you know that experience? You've, you've experienced that, right? Did your coach ever say, did your coaches ever say to you, this will make you better, this will make you better. Did you, anybody, you had that experience? My, my coaches did too. And you know what, I believed them. I believed them. I was the very rare wrestler, I don't know if you know much about wrestlers, but I was the very rare one who stayed on his diet all season. Eight months of the year, I was strictly on that diet because I believed my doctor. I believed my coach, and they told me that staying disciplined would reward me later. They promised that if I, if I endured the pain of eating right, I would have more energy in the match than all those other wrestlers who ate badly and then threw up to make weight or, or who fasted at the very end to make weight for a tournament. And you know what? They were right, and, and I won. Now, here's the odd thing, okay? Here's the really odd thing. I had little trouble believing those coaches who were very human. Okay, let me just stress, very human, all right? I had little trouble believing those coaches even though I was beaten black and blue, I was hungry, I was exhausted. And yet, this is astonishing, I struggled to believe Jesus who was beaten black and blue and died in my place. I I doubt Him when He promises that there are rewards for persecutions I face as a Christian. What nonsense! I believe these guys, no problem, and I don't believe Jesus. Thank goodness none of you are like me. When you're persecuted, you remember the promised blessing, don't you? Hopefully, we also do the third thing God commands. third thing God commands is to bless and pray for the persecutors. This is our second kind of prayer. Listen to Jesus' statement. Later in that same speech, uh, verse 43 of Matthew 5, go to verse 43. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And and, and look at this, a really powerful staccato series of statements in Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul summarizes Jesus' command this way. Romans 12 verse 14, read it with me, would you everybody, all together, Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. This is what sets you apart, Christian. Just about everybody is nice to people that are nice to them. Christians bless people who are horrible to us. Today, thousands of Christians are fleeing from states in Nigeria where people are being slaughtered for believing in Jesus. It's happening right now as we speak. Mary is one of those refugees. She shared this prayer request last week, just last week. Mary shared this with a missionary friend of mine. I want you to listen to this. This is one of the more remarkable prayer requests I've ever received. Please pray for us to get food and shelter. Pray for God to bring justice to this tragedy. Thank God that we are found worthy to suffer for the Lord. And here's the fourth part of our prayer request. Pray for the individuals who are hurting us. We love them regardless and want them to trust Jesus. That's biblical. In fact, that may be one of the best summaries of Scripture about persecution prayer that I've ever seen. And by the way, Things like that are what we hear from persecuted Christians all over the world. Even while we ask God to punish the persecutors, and we should biblically, we want that punishment to be used for their good that they might become our brethren in Jesus. All God's people said? What does the Bible show us to do when we face persecution? Pray about and for the oppressors. Remember the blessing and seek deliverance, seek deliverance. Three, three big parts to seeking deliverance God's way. Most importantly, we start by trusting God. Listen to a part of another Psalm. This one's by Asaph, uh, Psalm 50 verse 15. God says, call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Yahweh here is speaking to his people in a statement that quite frankly is often badly misunderstood. Here's what people do. They take this Psalm and they treat it as some kind of guaranteed and immediate promise that the pain will end. If you just call him God, then immediately the pain has to end. It, in actuality, it's much, much deeper than that, much more significant than that. The great writer Daniel Defoe, he, he, he understood this. He understood how deliverance is found in trusting God, and deliverance is often not what we think. I want to read you a scene. This is from Daniel Defoe's classic book, Robinson Crusoe. Um, how many of you have read Robinson Crusoe? All right, the rest of you, this is your homework. It's great. It is great. Okay, get the cliff notes, fine. But just read Robinson Crusoe, okay? We'll start here. Uh, Crusoe uh, has been shipwrecked. Uh, He's got some stuff with him. He has some belongings, Bible and other things, but he's been shipwrecked. He's on a desert island, okay? He thinks he's alone. It's a cool story. Anyway, thinks he's alone, and he's writing, all right? And here's what he writes. It must needs be that God had appointed all this to befall me, that I was brought into this miserable circumstance by His direction, He having the sole power, not of me only, but of everything that happened in the world. Immediately it followed. You can relate to this, right? You realize God's sovereign and then it hits you. Why has God done this to me? Now, he spends a period of time reading Scripture and pondering and praying, and then he writes this. Now I began to construe the words call on me and I will deliver thee, the psalm you just read, in a different sense from what I had ever known before. For then I had no notion of anything being called deliverance but my being delivered from the captivity I was in. But now I learned to take it in another sense. Now I looked back upon my past life with such horror and my sins appeared so dreadful that my soul sought nothing of God but deliverance from the load of guilt that bore down all my comfort. As for my solitary life, shipwrecked on the island, it was nothing. I did not so much as pray to be delivered from it or think of it. It was all of no consideration compared to this. And I add this part here, a hint to whomever shall read this, that whenever they come to a true sense of things, they will find deliverance from sin a much greater blessing than deliverance from affliction. Close quote. Trust God to bring the deliverance that is best. And deliverance from sin knows no boundaries and it is always available, all God's people said. Secondly, seek deliverance using your capacities, your own capacities. Go back to Matthew 10, I said we go back there. Matthew chapter 10, a little further down in this speech where he's sending the, uh, the apostles. Verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, escape to the other. For I assure you, you will not have covered the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, the second part of that sentence is about Jewish evangelism. Uh, The churches must keep sharing with Jews about Messiah Jesus until the very moment Jesus comes back. Until he returns, there will always be Jews who need to hear the good news of the Messiah. But the first part of Jesus' statement to the 12 is what matters for us today, for our study. And the Lord unequivocally tells his followers, flee from persecution. Do you see that? Every now and then as I travel, I'll bump into people who are really proud that they kind of sought persecution. That is not noble. That is not scriptural. It's stupid, all right? It's suicide. It is not what Jesus called you to do. After all, you should understand this, you live in Texas, not the least of the reasons that people move here. More people move to Texas than anywhere else in this country and some of those people are following Jesus' instruction. They are cleaning their sandals from the dust of places where they were persecuted and coming where it can be more safe. How do you do it? You keep your covenants, you don't act in fear, but you move away from the persecution. Seek deliverance from persecution by trusting God, using your capacity, and using the courts. Okay, that's what the Apostle Paul did. The Apostle Paul endured a series of unfair and quite frankly strange trials, and and, uh, he appealed in the middle of that to the highest court in the world. Look at this, Acts chapter 25. If I then am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, and none of them were, then, hand me, then, no, then no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Festus had conferred with his counsel. He answered, you've appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. Paul knows and invokes his citizen rights. It's a really wise move because you know what this does? It forces all of the shadowy persecution that was going on in his life out of the darkness and into the light of legal reason. Our point is not to study Paul's journey, although it's fascinating. Our task today is to recognize part of seeking deliverance is appealing to legal recourse, right? Now, with that in mind, I want to invite up an attorney who works with uh, the First Liberty Institute that we talked about earlier, Hiram Sasser. Come on up. Hiram is, um, is my friend. I'm honored to have him as a friend. He is also uh, a member of this church. So you may not know how famous he is. So let me, uh, let me read to you his uh, CV. It's too, it's too impressive. I couldn't remember it all, so I had to write it down. Here we go. Hiram Sasser is general counsel of First Liberty Institute where he oversees litigation and media efforts. He has successfully argued before federal and state appellate courts, federal and state district courts and the Texas Supreme Court. His past and present clients include the American Legion, VFW, Association of Christian Schools International, Fraternal Order of Eagles, the Falun Gong, a Native American sweat lodge, Jewish educational center, Southern Baptist Convention, National Association of Evangelicals, synagogues, various state and local governments, entities and officials. Hiram graduated summa cum laude from law school. He served in the U.S. Army as headquarters commander, a company executive officer, and training officer. Uh, Folks, he's made numerous appearances on any television station. You think of ABC, uh, CBS, BBC, NBC, Fox News, um, CNN, uh, as well as radio stations all over the world. Uh, I'd like you to please welcome our, our Christian brother who is quite frankly a constitutional expert, Hiram Sasser. Let's give him a round. By the way, his partner in crime, Michael Berry, uh, who's also a member of this church, he was supposed to be here today answering questions with us. Hiram's just gonna take the whole load. Uh, Michael got orders, uh, he's still in the Marine Reserves and he got orders Friday morning that he had to report today. So he is there probably watching soccer on TV. Anyway, um, Hiram, let's start off. It's probably, don't you think? That's probably true, yeah, I would say, yeah. Uh, Tell us, just give an overview, what does First Liberty do?
1: Well, we do uh, religious liberty cases all over the country, and so when it could be anything from a kid being told they couldn't bring a uh, Bible to school uh, to a, a Bible club being established at a school, or it could be a church zoning thing where a town says that a church can't, be, it can't exist in a particular location, uh, so, or it could be you know, people sharing, the, uh, sharing their faith in a public square. So it just depends on uh, you know, what, what it is, but all over the country, and we do it for all faiths.
0: Um, okay, so I told a little bit of Michael's case, the chaplains' choirs. Can you give us an update on that? It hasn't resolved as quickly as I was sure it would, so what's happening? Tell us about it.
1: Well, you know, th- this case is very, very disappointing because you know a lot of people, you know, they, th- this is dealing with the Special Operations Command, and a lot of people think, oh, the Special Forces, they must be conservative, right? Actually, they're the most liberal part of the armed forces because they're cultural relativists, right? They're, we we dropped them in. They're the ones that, who are gonna eat the monkey brains with the tribe. <laughs> Uh, in, in the village and whatnot. So they're cultural relativists. So they, they, uh, uh, they're n- it's not necessarily the most friendly place uh, to people of, of strong faith. And so uh, what's going on is we have an appeal going on with General Sontag right now. His lawyers and his legal team has been pretty committed to, uh, to trying to nail uh, Chaplain Squires, despite the fact that we have law on our side and we have the Army regulations on our side. So we'll see what happens probably by the end of this month but uh, uh, it's, it's certainly, uh, uh, you know, we're willing to take it all the way if necessary.
0: Well, t- you told me uh, privately, tell them what you, at the beginning of that case, what you learned about the lawyer for the Oh, other you're side. talking
1: about the Sheriff of Nottingham? <laughs> yeah. So uh, the first lawyer that they assigned to this case was Major Nottingham. And uh, we, we looked him up, just wanted to know, you know, who we were dealing with. And we found out that he hadn't actually paid his bar dues to, uh, to uh, Massachusetts or New York. So he actually didn't have a license to practice law. That was a lot of fun to inform Special Operations Command about that. He was kind of being a, a jerk to us, and I won't tell. Get into all the details, but uh, we had to explain the fact that he was not licensed to practice law to the to to higher authorities in the army, and uh, and he's no longer assigned to the case. Yeah,
0: yeah, the sheriff is gone. It happens, Robin Hood. Uh, now I know. Uh, let's talk about some others. Sadly, I know you're working a ton of cases right now, just a ton. Uh, can you tell us about one or more of them?
1: Yeah, I, I'll tell you about Marianne Sauce. Uh, this is kind of the, the, in terms of the most outlandish facts you can come up with, this is about it. Uh, so she was sitting at home listening to, uh, uh, radio, listening to her radio, listening to talk radio, uh, in an apartment uh, complex in, just outside of uh, Kansas City, and uh, the neighbor apparently had called the police on a noise complaint that she was listening to her radio too loud. So the police come and uh, they wanted. They didn't tell her why they were coming. They just wanted to come into her apartment. And uh, they show up, and she has a screen. And it sounds strange, but she has a, uh, on, a on an apartment, but had a screen door. And through the screen door, she held up her copy of the Constitution that she keeps by her door. I'm not making this up. And said that this 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 Constitution says that I don't have to let you in into the house. Uh, and that's true uh, without a warrant. And so they, uh, uh, they decided to go away, and then they came back later, and they said, if you don't let us in the house, we're going to arrest you. Well, she's an elderly lady, she doesn't know what to do, she's going to get nervous, so she lets them in the house, uh, and uh, they begin to search around, and she still haven't told her why they're there. And so she asked one of the officers, can I, can I pray? She's in her own living room, she's not under arrest, she hasn't done anything wrong, she hasn't been charged with a crime, can I pray in my own living room? The officer says, yes. Well, uh, just a few minutes later, another officer comes in and asks, well, what are you doing there? And uh, and, and the officer said, well, she's praying. Well, get up. You're not allowed to pray right now. You're not going to be praying. You you just need to sit there. Uh, And then they started thumbing through a book, and she asked, well, what are you doing? And they said, well, we're looking for something to charge you with. They still haven't told her why they're there. And the radio is still playing at the same decibel level as what allegedly led to the complaint. Yeah. After forty-five, after the 45-minute encounter, they finally left, telling her that they're not going to charge her with a crime, uh, telling her that uh, uh, apparently people in the apartment complex don't like her and that she needs to move away. And uh, they said, oh, by the way, the reason we were called was a noise complaint. Please turn down your radio. Okay. okay. That was quick. Yeah. And uh, uh, that was it. And so she filed her handwritten complaint to, in federal, to a federal judge there. Uh, the federal judge did what they do to most handwritten complaints, they dismissed the case. Sure. Uh, and, uh, but under the theory that the police officers were immune because there's no case that says that a, uh, uh, an officer can be held accountable for telling someone not to pray in their own home, because that's not, quote, a clearly established right.
0: You need to to probably explain uh, governmental immunity.
1: Yeah, Uh, just to give you an example about how governmental immunity works is that uh, government officials uh, are not actually held accountable for violations of the Constitution. Uh, They have qualified immunity. The the law has this built-in mechanism that presumes government officials are idiots and don't know anything about the law. And, uh, and so unless there's a case that specifies specifically what this particular violation is, they can be immune even though they violated the Constitution. So The court could say, yes, you violated the Constitution, but you're still immune. The problem actually with this case is that they weren't recognizing that there was even a violation of the Constitution. Right. So we took on the case, we go to the Court of Appeals, which is in Denver, the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. The team consists of me. Uh, the other person that was, on, uh, that was on the team was Jim Ho. Who is now Judge Ho on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, appointed by President Trump and and, and confirmed by the Senate, and uh, and so we're we're the ones asking the the, the tech, or asking asking the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals to reverse this, and what happens? Uh, well, we lose 3-0. Why? Because they say there's not a specific there's not a, it's this the facts here are so horrible and outlandish that there's no case that would ever that's ever arisen with these types of facts. So there's no way the police officers would know that this is a violation of the Constitution. You know, because it's so outlandish, because it's so outlandish. Right, yeah. There's no case.
0: It would, it would basically the, be like if they, if they beat you up illegally on a Tuesday, and we love police officers, not picking on them, but if they beat you up on a Tuesday illegally but the case is thrown out because the only case had been that they can't beat you on a Thursday. Yeah, that, right. that's, that's, a, okay. that's, a, that's
1: yeah. a good summation right. of, of qualified yeah. immunity. Yeah, all right. All right, this, so, hey, this
0: is what it is. So you lost.
1: So, so we lost, and so we decided to throw the long ball and ask the U.S. Supreme Court to reverse this you got to imagine, you got to understand, they, they get 7,000 requests, they take 70 cases, all right? So what do you think the odds are? You know, it's 1 in 100, yeah. okay? Uh, and on the last day of the term, the U.S. Supreme Court miraculously decided to reverse this 9 to 0, 9 to 0. They don't do a lot of things 9-0. Yeah. They don't do a lot of things 9-0 on the religious liberty front, I promise you that. But that's how you know outlandish and ridiculous this case was. Yeah. But think about it; they're telling th- these are nine justices telling four federal judges, "You guys all messed up." <laughs> all right, very popular. And that's you know. So anyway, so we're gonna go. We're gonna go back down, and that and that you do not automatically have immunity, and, and that it is. By the way, this is the proposition. This is the proposition that the U.S. Supreme Court put forward. You wouldn't think you'd have to write this down. But it's good that we wrote it down. You have a right, a constitutional right that's protected under the Constitution, to pray in your own home. So that that didn't exist in writing before, and now we we have a case that says that. So that's that's fantastic.
0: That uh, I want to piggyback on that for a second. There're going to be there're going to be folks, wonderful, well-meaning folks, who're going to write me and say, oh, this is we we understand the Nigeria example you gave earlier, but this doesn't happen in America." Um, this is what you do. You deal with this constitutional law all the time. What's your assessment of the state of religious liberty in America right now?
1: Well, the, it, that all depends on geography, right? Hmm. I mean, you're going to have, uh, you know, going to have a different religious liberty uh, uh, feel. In this country, in Texas, and you might have in in, in San Francisco or, yeah. or some other place. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a uh, now that doesn't mean that there aren't religious liberty cases in Texas. I mean, I have plenty of them. I've got a case where I'm representing cheerleaders who who wrote who wrote uh, uh, a Bible verses on the run through banners that the players go mm-hmm. running through uh, in Koontz, Texas. All right, which is you know probably about as conservative as you could possibly get. Yeah. Uh, yet we've been fighting them for five years, and we've won, but now they're complaining and they want to appeal again. And so, I mean, it can happen in Coons, Texas, but I'll give you some flavoring, like, outside of Texas. Uh, You have, just outside of Seattle, we have Coach Joe Kennedy, uh, who was told that uh, he cannot pray after football games as a coach on the field where he takes a knee and prays silently by himself for 15 seconds. And the reason why he can't do that is because people know what he's doing. And, 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 and since he's on duty and he is a, a, a public fi- official, uh, he can't be endorsing his faith in that way. Now, he could be looking for his contact lens, he could be tying his shoe. All right, it's 15 seconds silently, no one can hear him, but because someone knows what he's doing. And he's representing the, the you know, he's, he's representing uh, the the government according to them. Mm. I don't think after a football game a, a, a coach kneeling is doing anything on behalf of the government. But uh, a, according to the Ninth Circuit, that's uh, that it's perfectly okay to tell him that he cannot uh, he cannot do that after the games. So we're going to be seeking Supreme Court review of that. But that just gives you a little flavoring. There's different different uh, uh, levels of of uh, religious freedom depending upon where you are in the
0: country. Um, Let's say somebody, and this happens every day, somebody gets to your office and they say, I'm, I'm being persecuted from my Christian faith. Uh, and, it, and it's not like me. Because most of the time when I say that, quite frankly, I'm really being picked on because I'm being a jerk. I mean, let's be honest. It doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. It's because I'm a jerk. But this is legit. It's because of Jesus. What, what do you say to them?
1: Well, you know, the uh, the... The, the first thing that we uh, that we that we do is, you know, when we give them a call, is probably best encapsulated by a story from Chaplain Wes Uh Chaplain Motter uh, was a uh, chaplain in the Navy. Uh, he had been the chaplain for the special opera, uh, the naval Navy Special Warfare Center. Uh, he was basically, if you were in SEAL Team Six, he was your head chaplain. Okay, during part of his stint, and uh, he had uh, transferred to a new a new location that was not as high speed as that, Uh, and uh, he had gotten himself into a little trouble for doing the following things as an ordained minister of the gospel for the Assemblies of God. He said that he thought, he told somebody that he thought atheism was wrong. He told somebody that he thought that marriage uh, should be uh, uh, traditionally uh, uh, defined. And he said that um, uh, he thought it was, it was improper to engage in certain types of relations outside of marriage. Uh, and for that, there were complaints against him, and they were actually going to drum him out of the Navy. I mean, it was, he was on the chopping block uh, for uh, a board that would, uh, that, that would kick him out of the
0: Navy. And he had served how long? And
1: he had served for 19 years. They were going to try to get him out before his 20th year so he wouldn't qualify for his retirement. Right. Uh, that's how vindictive the Navy was being. Now, I was in the Army, so we got to go fight the Navy, which is awesome. <laughs> Absolutely awesome. Well, we eventually, we eventually won for Chaplain Modern. It's great. You know, he's actually a pastor just outside of Chicago now. Yeah. And we won so much that was so awesome is that at the end, uh, they, uh, they called him up and they said, where would you like us to transfer you now? And if you've ever served in the armed forces, you know, no one they don't ask you where, and especially they don't give you a medal. They they don't you don't go from being charged to give they gave him a medal, they thanked him for his service, and then they asked him, Hey, where would you like to go serve the rest of your career at? Mm. And he said, Please send me back to San Diego with my people. You know, because that's where the special operations command is, and away from you know other parts of the Navy that are not necessarily as high speed. But anyway, uh, so that was a great thing. But he had a great line that encapsulates it, answers your question, which is, uh, he says it better than I would. He said, he said, we, when we called him, and I don't remember saying this, but when we called him, we said, he said, you guys said we're coming for you, Chaplain Mater, we've got you, and we're coming for you. And uh, actually, I think we met that literally because we were coming the next day to his house. <laughs> but he took it. But he as, took it as this as the, sort of, you know, cavalry, yeah. you know, sort of protective uh, deal. But anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's, that, awesome. that's a good answer for that question. Uh,
0: all right, uh, one more. Um, we, have, we have people that study with us in dozens, dozens of countries. I don't know how they know about it, but every month thousands of people uh, read. And, and I know from when they write, I get to see most of the letters. There's a number of them that are attorneys. Now, this is really general, but all over the world. And, and I would think after this message, some of them are going to write and say, I've, I've got clients. We have religious persecution in my country. In general, what would you say to them about fighting those cases in their context?
1: Well, you know, what I would say is, is that you, you know, in order to win a case, any case, I don't care where you are, there's two things, there's two elements you have to have. You have to be technically correct. Now, that should be enough. Under the rule of law, that should be real enough. But judges are human beings, and so they don't aren't always going to follow the rule of law. Mm -hmm. Okay, but you got to be technically correct. But the second thing is that you have to. It has to sound reasonable. It has to sound like this is ridiculous and outlandish. Uh, even to the most hardened of hearts, mm-hmm. and uh, and so if you're going to do a case uh, in in, in another country, my I guess my advice would be would be to find the you know pick the case to bring is the most outlandish facts you can possibly that that that, that are out there pick yeah. that one if you can only pick one out of the five cases or ten that are presented to you yeah. pick the most outlandish facts and bring that case forward if you want to make uh, progress on religious liberty.
0: That's good. Thank you so much, Hiram. uh, Hiram and Todd, another fellow from First Liberty, have a table out there. They've got info if you want to chat with them, uh, talk with them, find out how you can pray for them. Let me pray for all of us right now, shall we? Father, we do pray for our brethren uh, all around the world, including our own country, who are persecuted for their faith. It is part of the wonderful blessing that we have. We thank you for blessings in heaven. We pray that we can stand up under it and that we will follow your scripture. Please let us follow your scripture when life hurts because we're persecuted. And Father, we pray, for, um, we pray for our church that we will support and encourage each other. Everyone here plays a vital role in being your kingdom and your light to the world. And we ask you to encourage us in that. Bless the offering that we're about to take. Use it to, to deepen our church and to bless our brethren around the world where we send it. In Jesus' name, amen.